Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The sermon text is from our Gospel reading, Luke chapter 10, verses 36 through 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, what a joy it is to share with you today one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever spoke, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, whether you are familiar with this parable or not, the story sounds kind of like something you would hear today. You know, a man falls on hard times, or in this case, hard fists, and then two people who might be expected to help don't. And finally, the hero emerges from the most unlikely person, a Samaritan. This whole parable is launched by a lawyer's attack on Jesus. Desiring to justify himself, the lawyer asks, just who is my neighbor? This lawyer was not like the lawyers of today, of modern practitioners of the law. He didn't specialize in taxes, family law, intellectual property. This lawyer was an expert in Jewish religious law, the law that governed the daily religious practice of the Jews in Israel at that time. Verse 25 of our text said that this lawyer tests Jesus, that is, ekperadzo. Now, what does, is this a good word or a bad word? What, how do we feel this out? Well, the only other time that that particular word arises in the Gospel of Luke is in Luke chapter 4, when Satan tests Jesus. So that makes us think that this is probably not just some innocent student looking to learn from the master, but this is a full-out attack on Jesus. Why? What did Jesus ever do to him? Well, this lawyer, the teachers of the law, the experts, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they used to be the go-to people for all of the religious and spiritual questions in Israel. But since Jesus showed up, everyone was going to him. He was taking their business, and that was not acceptable. And so they came after him. They were trying to tear him down in order to lift themselves up. I wonder, dear friends, how many of us have ever felt the need to do that, tear someone else down in order to lift ourselves up. Competition and conflict, they're pretty normal in today's world, so I would say most of us have felt like we had to do that at one point, or if not that, maybe we felt like we had to leave someone down in order to stay up. That was certainly the approach of the priest in the parable. You know, he's walking along, you know, probably on his way to do some priestly duties somewhere, when he sees this body lying by the side of the road. He doesn't know if the guy's alive or dead or about to be dead. But the problem is if he touches this body and it's dead, or if, say he tries to take him to get help and the guy dies on the way, now this priest is ceremonially unclean and he can no longer go and do the priestly duties that he was about to do. And that would just be really inconvenient. 
And so the priest does what he thinks is the most sensible thing to do. He puts some healthy distance between him and the, well, it's healthy for the priest, not so healthy for the other guy. Healthy distance between him and the body on the road, moves to the right side, continues on his way. The Levite is even worse. The text implies that the Levite almost comes right to the place where the guy's laying and just sort of looks at him, almost like a, a first century equivalent of a rubbernecker, you know, except instead of, wow, look at that truck. That, that thing is messed up. It's more like, oh man, look at that guy's face. Oh, this guy's a goner. So after satisfying some possibly morbid curiosity, the Levite does the same thing the priest did. Goes to the other side of the road, continues on his way, leaving this man dying alone on the side of the road. Dear friends, how many of us have done this? How many of us have neglected the needs of our neighbor in order to remain comfortable right where we are? What is even worse than that is not just neglecting the needs of your neighbor, but actually mistreating them, taking advantage of them for your own personal benefit. That's what the Israelites in the Old Testament reading were doing. In 2 Chronicles 28, these Israelites from the northern kingdom, because Israel at that time was split into two kingdoms, north and south, but they're still related, still all part of the same family, if you go back far enough. The Israelites from the northern kingdom beat the Israelites in the southern kingdom in a battle and took 200,000 of them captive as slaves. And these are their own relatives, their own people. They wanted to use them for their own benefit. There's actual archaeological evidence of this kind of practice happening later on. The site is called, well, it's about 20 miles north of Jericho in Israel. It's called Wadi al-Daliyeh. And the site includes a whole bunch of papyri, which include legal documents from about the 4th century BC, right around the time that Alexander the Great was making his you know, cast for power across the land. So these people were probably refugees because alongside those papyri were the remains of 200 people who apparently died alone and friendless in the wilderness. But before we go feeling too bad for those people, listen to what was written in some of those papyri, some of those legal documents. There were slave sale contracts written with no possibility of release of parole. These people had purchased slaves, and not just slaves, but fellow Israelites, their own people as slaves with no possibility of parole. And that was a direct violation of Mosaic law, of God's law in Exodus 21.2 and Deuteronomy 15.12, where they talk about the year of Jubilee. After six years of labor, they were supposed to release all slaves and relax all debts. Apparently, these people whose remains were found, they were both wealthy and sinister, and they thought they could take advantage of their fellow man. But instead, they wound up refugees from a superior military power, and they died alone 
They probably could have used a Samaritan to come along and help them, but it didn't happen. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, couldn't happen to a nicer group of people. But whether they deserve that or not, the fact is it's really not fun to be that person, to be in need and to be left alone hanging. I know that everyone, all of you have felt that at one time or another. And maybe that's why sometimes you don't feel too bad about letting other people have to figure it out for themselves. After all, you had to, so why shouldn't they? That was probably the attitude of the Israelites in 2 Chronicles 28. It was probably the attitude of the priest and the Levite. Just figure it out for yourselves. What a contrast from that attitude to the attitude of the Samaritan in the parable. Most of you are probably tracking this, but just in case some of you aren't really familiar with the whole idea of the Samaritan, Samaritans were persona non gratia. They were despised. And there was a good reason for that. Samaritans came, again, from that northern kingdom. Sometime after 2 Chronicles 28, around 722 BC, the northern kingdom was smashed, destroyed, and most of the inhabitants were exiled. This was done by a powerful military force called Assyria. And Assyria had a unique way of dealing with the countries it conquered because there was also the possibility that they would one day arise and fight back. So the way the Assyrians dealt with this was they would bring in foreigners from their own lands to live in that area. And then the foreigners would mix with the residents there And then they'd be too confused and divided to ever unite and fight back ever again. That's what they did in northern Israel. And the Samaritans were the descendants, hundreds of years later, of the intermarriage between the foreigners and the citizens of northern Israel. They were a constant reminder of the war, the people, and the territory that Israel had lost. And so they were despised. They were not liked. The Jews avoided them, and they would not be caught dead around them unless they actually were close to death. Then they didn't really have a choice. But it is one of these despised Samaritans who turns around and has mercy on this man, on this son of Israel, lying on the side of the road. This Samaritan ends up being the unlikely hero. Grace and mercy come from the place you would least expect, not from the religious, pious people too comfortable in their religious practice to help someone in need, but instead from the outcast, from the outsider. But who is the Samaritan? We really haven't gotten to that yet. Some of you might be thinking, come on, Chaplain Bell, you haven't told us what's the meaning of this parable. Is this just a a morality tale telling Christians how we should act, or is this more like of a allegory telling us what Jesus does for us. I'd like to pause there for a second and say that even though Martin Luther, Augustine, and many other church fathers, they did preach and teach this parable is about Jesus and his love for us, I would just venture to say if this parable were about 
how Christians should act to one another, it would not be the end of the world. Now, I do believe that this parable is about Christ, but I do think also that Christians should take seriously Christ's command to love one another as he loves us. You know, some people will teach that if you approach the parables this way in terms of righteous Christian conduct, or what Lutherans call the third use of the law, that you will lead people into the depths of despair. Some people say better not to avoid, or better to avoid talking about good works at all. You might make some people uncomfortable, especially if they're not doing any. Well, most people are hopefully doing some good works. Like I said, I do think this parable is about Jesus. But I just want to put that plug in there that it's okay if this parable is telling us how we should act towards each other. Clearly, this parable is all about the love of God for us. If you look at the Samaritan, this outcast, he is exactly like Jesus. Jesus also was an outsider, an outcast. Yes, he was an Israelite. Yes, he was a son of David even. But he was also conceived by the Holy Spirit. In Mark 6, when he goes home to try and preach and teach to his hometown, he is treated with contempt. They are offended at him. They call him the son of Mary in Mark 6, verse 9, emphasizing his questionable paternity. Just like the Samaritans, he is despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, as was prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He came to his own, and his own received him not, as was said in John 1, 11. And yet, as an outsider, he still loved his own. Not only that, but the Samaritan, he was gracious. He had what's called splankna, compassion for the man on the side of the road. Now that word splankna, that level of compassion, that is a serious word in the New Testament. Only God ever has that level of compassion for people. And you could apply that to today as well. Have you ever felt like no one really, truly had your back? Have you ever felt like no one really was always there for you when you needed them? Have you ever felt like no one really loved you as much as you needed? Well, if you felt that way, I have good and bad news for you. You're not crazy. It's true. The fact is you are surrounded by people who are sinners, people who are born in sin. And not only that, but all the people around you, they have been neglected in one or more critical needs at some point in their life. Maybe they currently still are being neglected. No one around you has the capacity to give that level of selfless compassion. Just like you don't have that ability to love others completely, unconditionally. It is only Jesus Christ, only one man who is able to love you completely, selflessly, entirely of himself. Only one person can be your brother, even in the darkest hours, even to the gates of death itself. 
Only one man can stand as a substitute, as a sacrifice for you, taking away all of your sins. And that is Jesus. The Samaritan pays two denarii, two days' wages, to cover the cost of care for the man at the inn. Jesus spends two nights in the grave. He spends his holy and precious blood on the cross to cleanse and wash away all of your sins. Three days later, he rises from the dead and begins the reversal of death's curse. And one day, he will return. And he will raise you from the dust of death, and you will be made clean of all of the pain, all of the scars that were put upon you in this life. And you will stand on your feet, face to face with God. And with eternal compassion, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. The Samaritan pours on oil and wine. Jesus pours on the Holy Spirit in holy baptism to you, giving you the seal of faith. And this faith will remain firm in you long after every mental and physical faculty is robbed by time and death. Jesus gives his holy and precious blood in the Lord's Supper to keep you firm in the faith, to give you a fervent love for one another. Clearly, this parable is all about Jesus. And clearly, this Jesus loves you very much. But the parable doesn't end there, does it? How does the parable end? What does Jesus say? He says, you go and do likewise. Yes, this parable is about Jesus and his love for you, but at the end of it, Jesus, he gives you a job to do. And that job is not to justify yourself like the lawyer tried to do. That way would lead to despair. Instead, he gives you the job of loving God by loving your neighbor. It's not a job you can do perfectly but it was given to you by Jesus. Who is your neighbor? The person stranded on the side of the road, the person at work that maybe you don't really like, but you can see they're having a bad day. Maybe it's the homeless man camped out on that bench along El Camino Real that's been there on and off throughout the summer. These people are not strangers. They're not inconveniences. They're not objects to satisfy morbid curiosity. They are your neighbors. Love them. Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. Jesus doesn't call you to tear other people down in order to lift yourself up. He calls you to imitate him who lowered, lowered himself down to the dust of death in order to lift you up to a glorious future. Jesus is your eternal hero. But today, out there, someone else needs a hero. And that hero might turn out to be the most unlikely person. You. Amen. And now, may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding Watch and guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. 
Amen.